Thanks for listening to In Good Faith. We love our listeners, we love to hear from them, and we'd love to meet you in person. The In Good Faith production team will be at the upcoming Faith Matters Restore Gathering, October 7th and 8th at the Salt Palace in Salt Lake City. And we'd love a chance to connect with you in person. Check out the program and buy tickets at faithmatters.org. See you there. This week we have an interview with Dr. Terrence Smith, a family doctor born and raised in Raymond, Alberta, Canada. Terry is a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and is especially interested in the idea of a Zion community. For Latter-day Saints, that's defined as the city of God and the pure in heart, an aspirational goal in righteous living for individuals, families, and communities. Terry took us through the founding of Raymond by Mormon pioneers in the early 20th century, led by mining magnate Jesse Knight. The Canadian government had encouraged Mormon settlement due to the use of irrigation in Utah, which was much needed in Alberta. Here he speaks of his own heritage in the church. I'm the fifth generation in the church. Our family joined the church in, uh, in England. Uh, part of them were converted by Wilfred Woodruff at a place called Benbow Farm, and came over with very early saints. They came to Nauvoo. They knew the prophet Joseph Smith. They came across the plains. They lived a couple of generations in Utah and then moved to Canada. My great-grandparents uh, were the ones who came to Canada. And so we've been here for three or four generations in southern Alberta. I just remember that it was it was kind of all-encompassing. It was all around me. I was surrounded by it. So uh, I don't remember being without it, in a sense. It was a, a small community. As you said, most of the members of the community, probably two-thirds to three-quarters of them, were members of our church. It was just sort of the way that things were. One of the reasons we came back here and stayed, in fairness, was we would really did want to come back here and have the support of family and friends and, and the kind of environment that we'd grown up. I'd been very happy here. You obviously get tired of that as a teenager and want to get away, but it was a very happy childhood. There was nothing oppressive or, or even limiting about it, for, as far as I could see. And do you remember just taking your parents' word for it, that there was a God, that faith was real? Probably those things came as they usually do when people figure out that their parents don't know everything. When you're 12, 13, 14 years old, I remember having a, not exactly a crisis of faith, but certainly wanting to test my faith. I read widely. I had teachers who weren't members of my faith who challenged me in other directions. Many of my friends were Buddhist, a large Japanese community also in Raymond that were that were Buddhists. I had friends who were other religions, and, and I was a addicted to books, you might say. I read a lot. I certainly explored other, other ideas. I don't think there's one moment that I could sort of put my finger on and say that was my conversion experience. I remember in, uh, in first year university, before I went on a mission, I, I latched onto Fawn McKay Brody's book, uh, No Man Knows My History, and read that. And my grandmother was very worried that I was reading it. I remember not wanting to disappoint her and yet being challenged by some of the ideas that were in that. It was a, a, an autobiography of, of Joseph Smith, the founder of the, of the LDS Church, and uh, not a complimentary biography in all terms. It had its problems, and I was being as critical of it as I was of my own religion at the time. And I guess uh, reading that and really having to challenge things and think about it, rereading some of the literature and the scripture that's unique to our church, put me back on the track in a sense, and I decided that I did want to serve a mission. 
After you were home, you have a practice. You had several leadership roles, lay leadership within Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and you find yourself as a stake president, which we might explain as kind of the bishop, for instance, of uh, of a diocese with several parishes. So several congregations together, and you are the lay leader of that, the religious authority in the area. I had the chance to read something that you had written and delivered at the beginning of your time serving that way, talking about developing a Zion community. The idea of Zion has been an ideal that goes back into the Old Testament and is repeated again in the New Testament, mostly in eschatological sort of last days discussions out of the New Testament in the in the 1830s and 40s the expectation was that they were going to try to establish a zion community first of all in uh, probably in missouri was the the initial most serious attempt and then again in nauvoo in illinois then that uh, expectation was carried out into utah and elsewhere how how would you define what a zion community was meant to be the ideal a zion community is where there's a unity of purpose unity of heart and of mind they tend; they are expected to be a righteous people, to be a to pure in heart, uh, pure in hand and heart, if you like. They're also a community where there's no poor among them, where economic disparity is eliminated as much as possible. It's a unitary society of of peace and happiness. Uh, you might almost call it a millennial view. The doctrine of our church, our position is that a certain group of people, a critical mass of people, if you like, have to develop a millenarian society, and then Christ will come and rule for a thousand years. The challenge always is in one's personal life, in one's family, and then in a community, to see if you can develop that kind of a Zion society or a Zion state within yourself. It has to start within. It's an internal thing. It starts on an individual basis. Then you try to move it into a family, see if you can get a, a marriage to be that kind of a, a unity, a harmony. Then you try to get it into a, an extended family. Then you might try to get it into a congregation and even a group of congregations in a small community like Raymond. It seemed to me that we had a, an opportunity to set that as a goal to, to try to do that kind of a thing because it was a fairly homogenous community. Anybody who wanted to get very rich had moved away. This isn't the place to live to become a billionaire or a multimillionaire. So there was already a, a relative economic uh, uh, leveling effect just by living in a small rural town. The people who live here in our church and in other churches were good people. They're wonderful people to be around. I knew them as a church leader. I knew them as a, a doctor. So why not try to have that as a goal for a community? We, it seemed to me that we were a good part of the way there already just by the circumstances of history and the socioeconomic necessity. So when you present this vision to the congregations, what was the reaction of people? It certainly got people's attention. Whether or not we've uh, done it or not, I think we're closer to it in some ways. It was, it was the effort to try to use a religious uh, Simpler and ideal, and apply it in practical terms to a community to get people to look within and see what they might do to be a little bit better every day. Everybody on earth, no matter what religion they're in or whether they're in no religion at all, I think we all get tested on three things. 
And I think they're the core of building a, a Zion society, whether we know we're building one or not. We all get tested on obedience, on power. What will we do when we're given power over somebody else? If we're the dad, if we're the mom, if we're the police officer, if we're the school teacher, if we're the doctor, how will we deal with our brothers and sisters on this earth if we're given power? That's the one test. The second test is what will we do with money, whether we have it or whether we don't? What, what will our attitude be to it? How will we deal with material stuff? And then the third thing is what will we do with sexuality? What will we do with sex in our life? I think uh, those are the basis on which... Uh, the moral things in this world turn, no matter what religion we're in. I think it turns on how we're tested in those areas. I think that's... So when you try to build a Zion society in yourself or in your family or with a community, those are the things you have to think about. What are the power dynamics that go on here? How are we treating each other? And then what do we do with our money? What do we do with our material goods? Are we generous? Are we kind? Are we gentle with each other in that way? And then what do we do with sexuality? Do we suppress it? Do we repress it? Do we turn it into a bad thing? Or are we promiscuous with it? Do we, uh, are we irreverent with it? Do we uh, treat it lightly? Or do we use it as a gift that, uh, that lifts us and binds us together and and create something more than we could have been by ourselves. I think those are the tests, and they're the tests for humanity, not just for a particular religion. What did that mean practically for you to try and prepare or become someone who could live in or be part of that kind of envisioned society? What did that mean on a day-to-day basis? Well, it meant that you had to be trying to do these kind of things. You had to walk the talk. You couldn't just uh, say it over the pulpit and then not do it. It had implications for my family as well. At that time, I had uh, teenagers and young children, and one of my teenage boys came home one day and said that he had some exams, and he thought that he didn't want to participate in a youth choir. And I said, yeah, that's fine. If you're too busy with other things, then you can skip that. He said, well, I just wanted to touch base with you. I said, yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. And he came back from school the next day, and one of the girls his own age had taken him to task, and it sort of said, way to build a Zion society, Jonathan. Ouch. You know? So <laughs> she had obviously heard what I'd said over the pulpit and felt that my children were measuring up to, uh, to what they should have been doing. It meant that you were in a bit of a fishbowl, in a sense. You had to, not that you aren't as a leader anyway, but I think it accented that, made us all uh, look at ourselves more closely. You mentioned earlier that it was predominantly LDS in the community, but lots of other good folks of other religious persuasions, or perhaps of none. And I'm wondering, as they heard about this, how did those relationships, interfaith relationships, uh, how were they affected by this vision among the religious majority? I can't remember anybody ever specifically coming and talking to me about the Zion concept, but I know that... uh, that we built good relationships with with many of the other faith groups in town. The local uh, Roman Catholic priest, uh, Father O'Reilly, was uh, from New York originally. And so we had this uh, <laughs> New York guy from the Bronx uh, as a 
parish priest in a, in a small LDS community in, in Southern Alberta. It was a bit of a thing for him, but he'd been, out, he'd been doing this for a long time. I think it was his 40th anniversary of his ordination to the priesthood. And uh, he was having a party. A party was being thrown for him. And so at the time, there were uh, seven bishops. Uh, the, each of the wards in our community, which are kind of like parishes, are headed by a bishop. So there were seven bishops in our stake, in our diocese. And uh, we got him a case that he could take the, the host and the, the sacramental wine and the other things around when he visited other communities because he was a bit of a traveling priest in, in rural Alberta. Anyway, we got him a case where he could take this stuff around, a new, a new leather case. And we had it inscribed on the front to the only priest who has seven bishops in his parish. <laughs> he, he thought that was hilarious. He was very proud of showing that around and uh, announcing to people that he he was a priest who had seven bishops and living in his parish. We had other uh, interfaith uh, projects and things that we did, but uh, that's the flavor of the sort of things that happened where we tried to build it together as a community, not just within our our particular faith group. You went on, besides uh, medical services, to become uh, the chief medical director for addictions and mental health services in the Chinook Health region for 15 years. If you are a figure of influence, as, as you have been, both as a religious leader, also as a doctor and helping people with their daily needs, and then also uh, on sort of a higher level in, in the medical echelon, what do you do to have a personal relationship with God, but also to include so many other people? I mean, most of us, we worry about ourselves, our kids. We maybe volunteer on a committee in our town, something like that. But is there some different responsibility when you are overseeing so, and being a support to so many other people? I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe that all, all of us are God's children. And I try to approach everybody that way, uh, no matter what their religious activity might be or whether they've got a religion or not. That's the way I've come at it. I don't uh, wear my religion on my sleeve in the sense that, uh, that I make the point of telling anybody who I am. They often find out in a small community everybody knows, but uh, in the broader administrative things that I did, I, I think people only found out gradually what particular religion I, be, I belong to, and uh, it never got in the way. It was always a plus. Mm. I never found it to be an encumbrance or anything like that. People were very respectful, and as I tried to be of them, never pretended to have all the answers, <laughs> and have been open to hear what, uh, what they had to say about different things. Mm. With a vision for a community and supporting each other, so as you said, there are no poor among them, that you, as much as possible, eliminate poverty and economic disparity. What role can a civic engagement play in that as far as the town and the community and legislation? Is that best left to the religious community? Well, that's been the question over the years, hasn't it? Democratic societies have to do what they can do to eliminate disparities amongst people on issues of race, of gender, of uh, socioeconomic differences. The government needs to be uh, even-handed about religions, that there should be a separation between church and state, that you don't mix the two. But on the other hand, I think that there's a, 
the greatest opportunity is really for what we can do as individuals for people. And I think it happens on an individual basis. Uh, that doesn't mean that we don't live in complex societies where governments need to do things for their population and do things for people. It's interesting that uh, a prophet in the uh, Book of Mormon, which is an LDS scripture, uh, named Alma, he had two hats if he wore. At one time he was the head of the government, and he was also the head of the church. And they had a sort of a theocratic setup. Trouble came into their community, into their society, and he decided to give up one role in order to take on the other. So he gave up the power of government. He gave up the reins of government where he had coercive power, even up to capital punishment. He let go of all that coercive power and just became the head of the religion. And his phrase was that he was going to bear down on people in pure testimony. And I think that's where the real change happens. I think we can uh, ameliorate society through political means, but I think the real thing happens on an individual level where people act as real Christians where they, uh, or where they act out of the best parts of themselves if they're not Christian, and they do things one-on-one. As we were saying before, I think that's where Zion is built. It starts, it starts in the interior of each person and then has to spread out to a society and a community beyond that. What is the role that you see, either for Christians in general or, or from your denomination, how does the church organization go about caring for people as a community? Things that we do on an individual basis, of course, are up to each person. One of the things we try to do with people is to get them to have the, the influence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And I believe that spirit will push us to do things that we need to do for others. And if we're open to hear that voice and to act, then I think that's the first level on which we do it. Then I think if you have a family, you have to have a family that's willing to do things and to help each other. I was talking to one of our church leaders a few years ago. We were talking about whether or not, how we could tell if we were successful parents. And he said, I'll tell you what the the answer is. I said, good. This was uh, President Henry B. Eyring, actually. And uh, he said, you'll know that uh, you're a successful parent if you see your children reaching out to each other across the world, unbidden uh, to help each other. He said, when you see that happening, then you'll know you're a successful parent. Mm. And I'm pleased to say that I've seen that in my children. So then I think it has to happen as though we're helping each other as a family. Then you get out to the broader community. In our particular church, we have a a welfare program that helps uh, members and non-members who need help in the community. It's financed by fast offerings. Our congregations uh, fast by skipping two meals once a month and donate the proceeds of that or more uh, to the bishops uh, who are then enabled to use that uh, locally and also churchwide in projects uh, where humanitarian work is done on a worldwide basis, as well as on a local basis. So there are things that are done there. So those are the kind of things that happen. I think we also have to get involved in uh, political and humanitarian and and professional work in the community. So part of the work that I was doing in addictions and mental health was to try to set up a system. When people had problems with addictions or when they had problems with mental illness or doing things to maintain their mental health, that there was a system there, a safety net, that would catch people that couldn't do it by themselves or who didn't have family support or who might not have had at church or a local community support. So you set up uh, levels of nets that hopefully catch anyone. 
you don't try to rely on just one part of it. Part of it has to be built with government and tax dollars, and part of it has to be built by individual initiative and building an openness and an attentiveness, an inner attentiveness to the needs of others that are around us. You mentioned at the beginning of that comment about the importance individually to follow the Holy Ghost or the Spirit of God directing. I'm wondering, do you have an example of a time in your life when you felt directed in a certain way? One is tempted to pull out a a spectacular example, but most of them are mundane. Mm -hmm. Most are are everyday life where you... uh, you feel guided to do certain things. You feel warned to, to not do something or to do something. I guess one of them is a very simple thing. Uh, there was a young person who, uh, who was a patient of mine in, in the medical clinic here in Raymond, and she was uh, going to a university in, in the central part of Alberta at, at Edmonton, the University of Alberta. She mentioned some of the stress that she was going through in her life right now and and that she missed out on, uh, she was not having sufficient funds to do it, and she wasn't sure she could get student loans to cover it. I mentioned it, not I'm not her personal story, but uh, just mentioned the situation to my wife later, and we talked about that and decided that we should maybe reach out and try to help her. So we helped her with her school expenses for a couple of years uh, while she got a, her feet underneath her and got a degree, and uh, that was something that, that I just felt pushed to, to bring up to my wife. It's not something that I normally would have done. My wife never knew who the person was Mm. and she didn't know where the money came from. Uh, You try to not let the left hand know what the right hand's doing. Sometimes those are the, those are some of the sweetest experiences in a way. And just to see how her life turned out, it was a remarkable, remarkable kind of a thing. That's a, maybe a, a clinic example for a church example, shortly after I became a stake president, uh, this ecclesiastical leader that you mentioned in the community, uh, there was a training session that was held in Salt Lake City that all the stake presidents in Central North America were invited to. So about two or three hundred of us showed up in Salt Lake at a meeting, and Elder Oaks at the time was going to talk to us about some changes in the handbook, the basic manual for how to operate the, the church administratively. So I was very keen, and I sat on the front row with a notebook and a notepad. And while he was talking, a thought came into my head very insistently that said, there's a young woman back in your community. You need to call her in when you get back and give her a, a blessing. And in the blessing, you should say this phrase to her. That's rather specific. Yeah. <laughs> I literally elbowed the, that aside. I brushed it aside. I said, come on, I'm sitting here trying to listen to, to Elder Oaks. Uh, surely this is more important. I need to pay attention to what he's saying. Why are you interrupting me in the midst of this? And then the thing came back, the, the, the sensation, uh, not an audible voice, but certainly a, an insistent uh, feeling in my, in my head that uh, said, no, you need to do this. You need to call her in and, and tell her this. So I'm slow, but I'm not stupid. So I wrote it down on my legal pad and said to the spirit, I will do that when I get back. Now let me get back to other Oaks. <laughs> I got back to what he was saying. When I got back, I did have her come in. She was reluctant to come in. I asked her if she would like a blessing, and she said no. 
she didn't particularly want a blessing. She said, I know what you're going to say to me in the blessing. Uh, I'm not very active in the church right now. I'm doing some things that I really shouldn't be doing, and I don't want to discuss them with you, and I don't want a blessing. I said, well, okay. But I said, let me tell you my perspective. I said, uh, give me a break here. I'm a new stake president. I went down to this meeting. This is what happened to me. I was told to tell you something, and I'm supposed to give you a blessing. So can I please give you a blessing? And she said, all right, give me the blessing. It was an unusual <laughs> uh, <laughs> blessing, offering, and acceptance. So I gave her the blessing, and she, uh, she cried as I gave her the blessing, as I said these words. I felt that I just overstepped it. I'd, I'd coerced her. I, you know, I felt bad about it, that I'd put her in a bad position, and I apologized. I said, I, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have pushed it this far. I've gone across a boundary here, and I shouldn't have done it. And she said, no, no, it's, it's not that. It, she said, it's what you said. And then she said this phrase that was part of the blessing. It wasn't the whole blessing, but it was a part of it. And she said, I'd been promised that in a previous blessing, but I had thought that because of what I'd done, that that was no longer open to me in my life. And I said, no, no. It's... And I told her again how I'd gotten the, the inspiration to say that to her. It didn't cause an immediate change in her life. It wasn't a magic thing that you'd write up in the church magazine. But uh, she got away from the small town that we lived in. She got some new friends. She, she got married. She came back into activity in her faith. And her life turned out much different than the way that it was headed right then. And she came back later and said that uh, the blessing and what I had said and the fact that she felt that she had another chance had been a turning point in her life. I think there's myriads of examples of things like that that happen to people. Many of them we don't even know about. The unusual part of that was that she came back and told me hmm. the influence of what I had said had had on her and, and on her life. So those are the kinds of things that, that build that society. But it's one-on-one. -on -one. It, it doesn't happen in a great mass. It, uh, it happens as people interact with other people in faith and in hope. I think most of us, almost all of us, are going to be all right. Well, those are beautiful stories and, and lovely outcomes that you decided to follow, even though it's not easy always to follow that little nudge or, or direction. No, I've ignored it many times and found out that I shouldn't have. <laughs> Part of the commitment that you try to make as you try to build this sort of Zion concept in yourself is that when you feel those nudges that you will follow them and that you do it promptly. The more you do that, the more you're trusted with. When you can become uh, dependable in your dependence on that voice, then you are entrusted with more. And it comes more often and more clearly as you follow them. Thanks again to Dr. Terrence Smith and Raymond Alberta, who's helped us think about what a strong, united community should be like and how we get there. This episode was produced by Austin Ball and edited by Heather Bigley and Daniel Phillips. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. If you enjoy the show, be sure and leave a comment or review where you get your podcasts that helps spread the word. Our Twitter feed is at InGoodFaithPod. 
In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon right here in Good Faith.